0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is the Nordic Asia Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bo I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we talk about South Asian politicians who are treated like gods, and about gods who enter politics. In other words, we discuss political deification in South Asia. This phenomenon is the focal point of a new thematic issue of the journal called Religion, which just came out as issue 4 in 2022. I was fortunate enough to be one of the guest co-editors of that section, and I'm joined today by a panel of people who have contributed to it in various ways. With me are co-editor Momita Shen, the brainchild, one might say, behind the Political Deification Project, and also Associate Professor of Culture Studies at MF Norwegian School of Theology, Religion and Society. We have also Editor-in-Chief of the journal Religion and Professor of the Study of Religion in Bergen, Michael Stausberg. In addition, with us, two contributors to the thematic issue, Prashkurnar Senharoi, who recently defended his PhD dissertation from the Center for Studies in Social Sciences in Calcutta. He's also a research consultant with the Election Commission of India. Last but not least, Sharika Tirana Associate Professor of Anthropology at Stanford University. Welcome to all of you. So let's, Momita, just jump straight to it. Political deification, what is that?
1: It's a bit funny because you know as much as I do what political deification is. Because, you know, we worked on it together on the issue. But I'll keep a straight face and play my role of answering for the both of us. So just to make it clear, what I'm saying now is thought and written by the both of us. So yes, what is the main idea? In popular media in India, political deification refers to the phenomenon of political leaders being treated like Hindu deities. But we also include in our working definition of political deification, the related, but slightly different process of established and emerging deities being invoked in political arenas. The term is used regularly in Indian media because it's a serious and common theme in Indian politics. It has also been a topic, as many of us know in social and print media, you know, some commentators will warn their readers against, quote, the danger of deification and all this, quote, culture of political veneration. And this, from our perspective, it seems like a more normative position. But also, you know, you'll hear middle classes seeing such acts of obvious political deification as an oddity or a scandal, or an outright joke, you know, at the state of the Indian democracy. There are so many examples of this in India, like Mahmouda Banerjee, the chief minister of West Bengal, she appears regularly as Durga, that both Kenneth and I have explored quite a bit, or Sonia Gandhi, the leader of the Congress party, is treated like Hindu goddess Lakshmi, or Rahul Gandhi, her son is portrayed as Hindu god Shiva, and so on. Kenneth and I have been discussing this issue for a number of years now. We organized this conference, as Kenneth said, in Calcutta, and then we began putting together this fantastic edited collection, which we are about to learn more about. We are really grateful for all the fantastic researchers who collaborated with us despite COVID and everything else, and we built the concept together. And here it is now. So to really find out what on earth is political deification, you have to check out the thematic issue in this issue of religion. You'll find the link in the show notes. So back to some examples. Let's think as recently as spring of 2022, when a number of Indian states went into election, Prime Minister Narendra Modi was described by a minister in Madhya Pradesh, a state government, as an avatari purush. So like an avatar or reincarnation of the Vedic cosmic man. You know, the guy Krishna becomes after reciting the Gita on the battlefield to Arjun. Anyone my age from India brought up on B.R. Chopra's television series, Mahabharat, really remembers this, I think. This minister said that Modi had been born into this world like a great Hindu god, Ram or Krishna, to end the despair caused by corruption and casteism of his predecessors. Now, we can see, you know, how when an Anglophone elite person hears this, this is received, I mean, almost with outrage or best humor, they might mock this as political gimmick. But we also understand for some, this could be a sign of sincere devotion. But overall, it is our contention that the Indian voter understands the forms, processes, the material, symbolic indicators of political deification, almost as a matter of common sense. And certainly, political workers, activists, and leaders engage with this as part of their political work. They embrace it or keep it somewhat at an arm's length, depending on the context of political action. In that sense, we see political deification, at least in part, as an emic concept. But what's interesting is that it has not so far been interrogated academically. What we did in this issue is that we proposed the notion of political deification as a useful analytical concept. In the study of religion and politics, we felt that a lot is lost in the gap between disciplines, such as political science, history, study of religion and political anthropology. Our aim was to explore this very gap between disciplines, and we felt that this is where political deification would be found at the intersection of religion and politics. So this thematic issue, we asked questions like, what kind of efficacy of gods and their things are mobilized in the interest of community building and vote bank politics? We asked, how can we understand the processes through which political leaders, godmen, stars of all kinds, and big and small deities, how do they mingle together in the public sphere as like special beings that are able to cohere communities of followers? And how can we really theorize the slippages between the divine and all this material business of money and power among political authorities, actors, lay voters, and so on? I think I'll stop now and let some others speak about this issue.
0: But this is a great pitch for <laughs> for the thematic issue as a whole. Thanks so much for this moment. It's been a great concept to work with also along the way. As you say, it's an emic term. It appears in the press every now and then. It pops up in, in social media and all of a sudden there's this attempted transformation of what begins as an emic term into more of an analytical category.
1: Yeah, and I think that our ambition has been to lift the concept of political deification to the level of the ethic, right? And to use it as a prism for cross-cultural analysis. So I feel like what we were most occupied with is not so much what political deification is or means, but rather to understand comparatively what political deification does, That is, what is it productive of? And that's also what our collaborating authors made us think about. So basically we were more interested in a functionalist definition. And the main argument that runs through the collection of articles is that political deification is fundamentally productive of political communities at different scales. That some forms of political deification operate at the scale of the nation and sovereign authority Then there are other forms which operate at the scale of, let's say, a more localized caste-based community within relatively established political orders. And then there are other forms that are scaled in ways that enable people to partake in countercultural formations that work to bring new political communities in opposition to the established order as well. But across all scales, all processes of political deification constitute political communities. I think that's the argument that we have been able to make throughout this issue.
0: Michael Stausberg, as mentioned, you are the editor of Religion, the Taylor & Francis journal that has published this collection. Not all listeners may be familiar with Religion. What is this journal's mission?
2: First, thank you for having me. And of course, everybody should have heard about this journal. The journal has been published since 1971, so your thematic issue is issue four in volume 52. The journal started in a period when the study of religion was reinventing itself. It kind of shook off the heritage or the legacy of philosophy and theology or purely textual studies that had dominated the field or some kind of an essentialist phenomenology of religion. So. A group of younger scholars in the UK started this journal, which initially was very much run as a collective effort that later became more streamlined into a professional journal. It then internationalized. So the journal soon started to get an American editor and editorial board. And we, the present generation of editors kind of continue this development. Me being German by nationality, working in Norway on the one side of the ocean and my co-editor, a Canadian on the other. We are the first ones who are not tied to Britain academically or by nationality. And in recent years, the trend has continued to involve scholarship and scholars from other parts of the world. So we try to expand our reach. So this year, for example, besides your political deification thematic issue, we have two more thematic issues that also have predominantly contributors from the South and from Asia. One on COVID-19 and another thematic issue on Emic concepts, that is concepts emerging from non-dominant languages that could potentially enrich our scholarly vocabulary when studying religion. So this is a short outline of the history and the journal then has a fairly broad range in terms of theory, method, and cases, and We welcome basically all relevant research that is not tied to normative agendas on how religion should be.
0: I wanted to ask you why you think a collection of papers on political deification was a good match for the journal?
2: We, that is us editors, the editorial board members who initially read your proposal, and then the readers of the individual contributions welcome the originality and relevance of the topic and also the range of analytical perspectives that were first promised and then actually also provided and of course your proposal resonated with our ongoing initiative uh, to remain committed to um, cross-disciplinary work and to feature also the excellent scholarship of colleagues from uh, different parts of the world.
0: If you don't mind me getting just a little bit personal, this is the last question for you before we move on to the other participants. When we were first in touch with you about the possibility of perhaps your journal publishing this collection... I remember one email in particular where you warned us to be mindful of the risk of simply ending up with a collection of articles that were, and now I quote by memory, vaguely about religion and politics in South Asia. Probably a very real risk now, looking back. Now that we know the final result, did we succeed in this?
2: Well, you think we would have gone for publishing the the (laughs) issue if if, if you hadn't? No, really. I mean... This initial suspicion, as an editor, you have to be kind of suspicious because often you are getting promised things that then in the end don't really materialize when it comes to thematic issues. But in our case, I think we had a very good and effective and fruitful dialogue. First, between us in these initial conversations and then between you and the contributors, so one saw things converging in a certain manner, then between the referees and the contributors. And in the end, in a final round also between me and the contributors. So it was kind of an interlocked dialogue that proceeded on different levels. I also began to like this idea of picking a term that originated in a certain context. And that initially was one of critique and of a normative agenda, but then reading it in a way against the grain and doing something analytical with it so that it would offer new perspectives on the dynamics of religion and politics in South Asia and maybe even beyond. I do think that was all in all a very productive process.
0: Let's turn now to some of the individual contributions to the thematic issue. First of all, congratulations on the successful defense of your PhD only yesterday. Thank you. The PhD is on the Motua, a religious community in in West Bengal, and this group is also the focal point of your article in this uh, thematic issue. It's a group or a community that might not be all that well-known outside of the state of West Bengal. Who are the Motua?
3: You're right. The Motuas have remained outside the purview of academic inquiry for the longest time, in spite of being a numerically strong and politically and culturally significant community in the history of modern Bengal. The Motwas, I'll tell you, are the followers of a distinct anti-caste religion called the motwa Dharma that emerged in the 19th century in the eastern parts of pre-partition Bengal. And the religion became extremely popular, uh, particularly among the Namashudras, who are formerly untouchable caste about community within the Hindu society. And the reason behind the popularity of the religion is its egalitarian philosophy and promise of a caste-less social-religious order. And in fact, the initial mobilization of the Namashundra movement, which we know from Shekhar Bandhubadha's work, for example, actually started around this community. And in the recent past, the community has become politically and electorally very important in the state of West Bengal and also in other parts of India. And that's it. I mean, they're emerging political force.
0: What is the importance of Mutua's symbols in the electoral politics of West Bengal, but also elsewhere?
3: The use of Motua symbols, which I actually concentrate on in developing my article, it's very important in the domain of elections, especially in today's times. And mostly the symbols they use are the images of the two founders of the religion, Hari Chath and Guru Chath Thakur. Especially it's more important in the areas which are most populated in the districts bordering Bangladesh. This is a very recent phenomenon, let me tell you, and which started since the late 2000s. And 20 years back, the motua icons were completely unknown to the mainstream politics of the state. It was limited, uh, the consumption of these iconography was limited within the community, in their print literature or in their festivals. But now the motua symbols have a much wider audience. The development of this is because of a movement which was led by their main organization called the matua Mahasanga. And now that the Mathuas have become an electorally salient community that no political party can ignore them. And in fact, political parties across ideological line, as I witnessed during my field work, have started using Motua symbols in their campaigns. So, I'll give you one example. Like at present, it's very common during election campaigns to use the images of Harichad and Guru in party posters or banners, or to carry the Motua religious flags in political rallies. Another example. I can mention is the recent visit of the Indian Prime Minister Modi to the temple of Parichat Thakur in Bangladesh in 2021, at the time when the West Bengal State Assembly elections was going on. And actually, these examples testify the growing salience of Mothra's involves in the domain of politics.
0: You've been working on the Motwa for a long time. They are, as we heard before, the subject of your PhD. I think it's now at least 10 years ago that I first saw one of your publications on the Motua, a shorter article, I think, in Economic and Political Weekly. So this is clearly something you've been thinking about, working through for at least a decade now. I wanted to ask, to what extent this idea of political deification has changed your way of thinking about this community compared to how you've thought about the Motua in some of your earlier work?
3: Yeah, actually a lot. When I started working on the Motuas, during my MPhil, actually, I was particularly interested in the Motuas Mahasangas movement for citizenship rights of Dalit refugees, who migrated from Bangladesh after 1971, and the participation of Motuas leadership in electoral politics to achieve their very specific demands. And also I looked at the major shifts that was happening at the time in the larger politics of West Bengal at the rise of Cast in West Bengal politics in substance. But while I continue to closely study the movement for citizenship rights and the voting behavior of the Mothuas, my fieldwork actually introduced me to the more complex world of Mothuas politics. I observed how Mothuas deities and religious symbols were invoked in the realm of politics, and particularly for the purposes of, as Movita mentioned, for community building and identity formation, both by Motwa organizations, other Dalit organizations, as well as by other political parties, mainstream political parties. And this uh, phenomenon of political deification of motua deities that I witnessed in my field actually gave rise to what I call a Motua political public. This Motua political public is a counter-political public that stands in opposition to the upper caste establishment. It's heterogeneous in its character due to its internal tensions, but also have a shared goal towards achieving dignity, substantive citizenship, recognition, and a share in the development agenda of the state. And thanks to the conference, like Gods in the Public Sphere, organized by you, Momita and others in Kolkata in 2019, that actually motivated me to think more seriously about the idea of political deification. So thanks to you.
0: <laughs> You're most welcome. You're most welcome. Prashankundu and the cases you've given us now, they're all from India, no? but the scope of the issue is actually South Asia. It's political deification in South Asia. And there's also one paper on Bangladesh by our Oslo-based colleague, Arild Root but also contributions on Sri Lanka. Sharika Tiranagama. as an anthropologist, you've worked on Sri Lanka now for many, many years, including on a range of issues related to civil war and political violence. The Tamil militant organization, the LTTE, that you write about in your chapter is famous for its emphasis on death and sacrifice. Could you tell us more about what the relationship is between this emphasis and then the figure of its leader, Prabhakaran?
4: Thank you. And I just want to start off actually by thanking both Kenneth and Momita for inviting me to be part of this issue. And I also learned a lot from using political deification. Let me start off by saying I don't think that there's anything uniquely Tamil about the importance of death and sacrifice and martyrdom. Because I think we see that the sacralization and circulation of death is central to nationalism and martyrdom is in most political movements. But death and sacrifice and martyrdom in the LTTI elaborate and institutionalize in ways that are very, very unique. And they're very centrally focused exactly on the leader, Prabaharan. And you can see that in two ways in relation to the movement and in relation to the Tamil public. And I'm sure anybody listening in will know what I mean, because it's a very phenomenal Tamil diaspora in Scandinavian countries, actually. The LTT, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Eelam, they went from a militant movement, among many others, in the 1980s to banning other Tamil militant movements and seizing power as a kind of hegemonic force in Tamil nationalism. And it had this internal skeleton that really shaped it. It was an emphasis on hierarchical militarization, obedience, and absolute loyalty. And it was able to manage this very violent transition through making this call for Tamil Eelam, a Tamil homeland, into an article of faith synonymous for itself and through the figure of the leader Prabaharan. So Prabaharan became the very personification of the LTT and all rituals, slogans and imaginaries of Tamil Ulam became mobilized around his kind of ritualization and deification. And so you can see this in a number of ways, both internal and external. So fairly early on, LTT carders wore cyanide capsules, so kuppi around their neck. And, you know, young carders would say, that just a thought of Prabhada and help you strengthen your heart and quench their thirst. And suicide, which is known as tatkola, you know, the killing of oneself was renamed tatkoda, the gift of oneself by the LTT. And at the same time, as this kind of routine possibility of death for all carders, you also had the special suicide squads, the black tigers. And the kind of aesthetic surrounding the black tigers Is also kind of heightens a special chosen nature of death in the LTT world and this kind of chosenness is centered on the figure of Prabharan. You know if you're a black tiger you're supposed to have a meal your last meal with Prabharan. So what the LTT really did was it came up with these two concepts of martyrdom both around the leader one of them is the tiyahi. In Tamil it means abandonment it's the abandonment of life you die both men and women while killing and the other concept is a mavira, the great hero, which actually the mavira is much more as a popular purchase. And both of them kind of valorize the sacrifice of your life as the heroic act. The death of the self is valorized over the death of the other. And most of this was elaborated after 1990 when the LTT became supreme. They set up this office called the Office of Great Heroes to develop martyrology and symbology and big public festivals. And it was all about Prabhupada too. So from that point onwards, like LTT cemeteries, even for a mostly Hindu kada became more elaborate. Family funerals were no longer allowed. LTT kada stones only had their movement names, the LTT details. And then you had these two big festivals. So internal to LTT territories is the Karampulina. That's a black tiger's day in July. That was never celebrated in the diaspora because obviously it's a celebration of suicide squads, but that's a very important festival within LTT territories where you'd have all these posters of all the LTT cadre, the suicide squads and memorials and so on. And then Mavi Renal, which is very, very big, and that's very well known in the diaspora too. That's the public festival in November, which is on Prabhupada's birthday. And on Mavi Renal's families within Sri Lanka were allowed to enter LTT cemeteries because they weren't allowed otherwise. But on those days, they could mourn their lost ones. But all these public occasions centered these martyrs in relation to Prabhara. He would begin the ceremony of Mahaviranal. He would light the sacred flame. He would ritually deliver a speech broadcast around the world on LTT TV stations. And the speech was supposed to be like this plan for the year forward. And then along with this kind of videos of this, which were screened everywhere else, you'd have all this kind of proliferation of aesthetic photographs of martyrs, the LTT flag, its colors, red and yellow. There are screensavers. You can't imagine how much memorabilia there is. And so much of it, almost all of it, focuses on Prabaharan. And these kind of big calendrical public occasions perform the LTT's claim to be Tamil, and to create Tamilness to create new forms of Tamilness around the organization and around loyalty to the leaders. Prabaran was sanctified as the one who embodies sacrifice and the one who is sacrificed for. One of the really important things to know about that is that the only martyrs for the LTT, the only death and sacrifice that counted were those who were cadres or associated with the movement. So civilians and those from other movements killed by the state or those the LTT killed, couldn't be counted as martyrs, because you had to die sacrificing for Prabhupada. And that's very different in Palestine, for example. Anybody who dies as a result of Israeli state action is a martyr. But that was never the case for the LTT. They controlled it around sacrificing for Prabhupada. And one of the interesting things you see after the end of the war, and basically the killing of Prabhupada by the Sri Lankan state, is that for the first time, you really see Tamil media in the last 10 years talking about civilians who died at the end of the war as martyrs. That's a very new use of actually understanding martyrdom as it applies to the ordinary Tamil public, not only to the LTT cadres.
0: What do you think the lasting impact of the political deification of Prabhakaran, even after his death, is going to be?
4: It's quite phenomenal. I began the article I did for your special issue by recounting how I was at a Catholic Mass, and I was kneeling and listening to the sermon, and then the priest spoke of Jesus as talaver. Now, talaver, for everyone who knows, is a Tamil word for leader, but it's what Tamils call Prabharan. <laughs> I was listening to it thinking, okay, so what does it mean to call Jesus after the name that everybody thinks of for Prabharan? What are the connotations? Is it a way of, in a repressive context, also sneaking in references to Prabharan? the priest was saying, we must listen to Talavar, we must listen to his word. And in a Tamil public where everybody, including myself, I'm a dissident, I would very much say, but recognizes the charge of what it is in that world. It's very clear to me that Prabaran is not going to shape the way we think about gods and goddesses in Sri Lanka, because there's a very complex religious landscape, which also these religious leaders tried to make sure that the LTT didn't take over because the sanctity of the LTT threatened to kind of overtake all these other sites and spaces. But the kind of aesthetics and the structure and the shape of the LTT does shape how Tamils think about political leaders. It continues to shape how the Sri Lankan state persecutes Tamils because it's insistent that It needs to keep the LTT alive in order to continue its repression. But culturally, aesthetically, you can see the way in which what the LTT set up, these aesthetics, these deifications, continues to shape just how people even consciously or unconsciously put up yellow flags, for example, at memorials, which are the LTT colors, or the way that children in the diaspora don't realize that the kind of Tamilness they get is one-crafted by the LTT. There's many ways to be Tamil, but for the last 20 years, the LTT has dictated what it means to be Tamil. That is a very profound shaping of political and social life.
0: Momita Shen, we're approaching the end of this episode, but there's one final thing I'd like to ask you about. And it has to do with the fact that both in the introduction, but also in the conclusion, to this collection, we kind of speculate that political deification may be one of those concepts that travels quite well, in the sense that it may, as an analytical category, also resonate beyond South Asia. What's going to be next for political deification?
1: Our hope was that even though we were all working in the tradition of grounded theory and ethnographic thinking, that this would be possible outside, that it would be possible to apply this. I'm currently working on a research project which looks at political deification at the level of Asia with different Asian polities. So I'm looking at things like red tourism in China, where travelers visit sites of revolutionary significance, including sites connected to communist leaders, the imperial cult of Japan, the reverence of the remains of Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. But, you know, these cases are all over the world, though. I mean, just think about the treatment of the image of Lenin in Russia or the reburial of dead bodies in post-socialist Europe. We also found this interesting while we were doing research that in popular and media discourse, the concept of deification is now applied to describe the relationship between political leaders and their dedicated followers in a great variety of contexts, both in Europe, America, in the global north and the global south. We found that the relationship between Donald Trump and his following among the white evangelical Christians was seen like that in Germany, Angela Merkel's handling of the refugee crisis some years back, they kind of led her to almost near deification of Merkel as savior kind of thing. The fact that the trope of deification circulates so widely in popular discourse on politics in many parts of the world, and it apparently appeals intuitively as a way of understanding political processes. It uh, may be taken as an invitation to further careful empirical research. For me, this was a very important point. I would like to see the analysis of political deification comparatively across contexts in the global North and South, because I feel we don't gain much from seeing this as an example of quote radical alterity in the usual kitty of Eurocentrist political theory. It's not like, People in the global South are all weird and irrational and full of religion, and they haven't learned secularism in the colonial school correctly. It's not like these processes are pre-modern or pre-colonial, right? They're born of post-colonial modernity, and they coexist in the same terrain with so-called Eurocentric constitutional democracies. I think that such concepts built from the global South may actually serve to reveal the gaps that exist between liberal political theory and the actual practice of politics. And much of current scholarship in the Global South is actively pursuing this need to decolonize by building on hybridized emic concepts. And this is a long and difficult project. It's a hugely important task of building and recentering categories from our fields in the Global South. We wanted our special issue to be part of this work to foreground concepts from the global south in conversation with cases from the global north.
0: Mo Shen, Michael Stausberg, Pushkun Senharoy, and Sharika Tiranagama. Thank you all so much for joining me today to talk about political deification in South Asia. You can read more about this in the latest issue of Religion. That's volume fifty-two, number four, just out, fresh off the press. My name is Kenneth Bo and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic
2: Asia podcast.